Welcome to episode three of Nomads, the HCI podcast. I'm Connie, and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. We're really excited to share yet another conversation about human-computer interaction and society. Take it away, Sunny. Hi, I'm Sunny, and today we have uh, someone special with us. Uh, his name is Kian Lavi. He's a product designer for privacy at Facebook currently, and uh, he's also a documentary photographer and occasional coder. Uh, he graduated from uh, University of California, San Diego, majoring in cognitive science with a focus in human-computer interaction. He says he's passionate about the uh, fringes of HCI and also about finding the balance between art and technology. Welcome, Kian. Hi there. Hi, Connie. Hi, Sonny. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk about whatever it is we want to talk about today. And we are super happy to have you. Let's just jump right in. How and when you found your passion towards product design and HCI, um, like what, where does your journey start and how did it get to where you are now? So my journey is really weird and winding and circuitous. Um, there's kind of one moment I always talk about as for when I got really interested in product design. And it was in one of my like senior lecture classes for cognitive science when I was in college. And we had an, um, an alumni come by and talk to us about how he designed the user interfaces for a bunch of supercars, like the Nissan GTR, I think was one of them. And it just blew our minds that this was someone's day job. And we had no idea how this connected to anything we were doing in school. And we'd been learning about design and we'd been learning about technology, but it was very abstract and academic and focused on you know, neuroscience and how the brain operated and how and why people psychology psychology. And this guy came in and was basically like, oh, I, I take the ways that people think and I build products around those. And every single one of us sitting in that class were just like, holy shit, we got to do what this guy's doing. And we went to all of our advisors and our professors and we're just like, is this a thing that happens? And they're like, yeah, this is the applied side of all the stuff we're teaching you. And all you have to do is you know, focus on human-computer interaction. And so we all, we all changed our specialties to HCI and realized very quickly, you know, this is like 2012, we realized there was no curriculum for product design. And we didn't even really know what product design was. So we just kind of cobbled together a bunch of classes that we thought would make sense and found out that, you know, none of our professors had really anticipated that any of us would want to do this. And so we very quickly put together these classes that, that made sense for ourselves um, and inevitably became kind of like HCI design kids. I think probably the first batch at UCSD at that time. Um, a really interesting fact, though, is the cognitive science department at UCSD has a really interesting place in the design world in the sense that Don Norman was the one who started the program at my school back in the 90s. And so like he kind of spearheaded this whole field and it went unnoticed at UCSD for like 20 years. No one ever talked about it until around the time that I was in school. Um, and we basically were like, why is this not part of our history? Like this is a really big program to have started here. And we just like neglected it. And so um, around that time, we hired a bunch of faculty and they tried to like model our design program after the D school in Stanford and yada, yada, yada. And now, now there's like a real design program and kids who graduate from my school go straight to like really big companies, which is awesome for them. I didn't have that experience. My path took a lot longer and it was a lot harder, but I'm, I'm glad that kids are succeeding now. That's a great journey, Kian. And uh, just to give uh, a context to our audience, uh, Don Norman worked at uh, Apple in 1980s and later he joined uh, UCSD and is uh, considered a pioneer of HCI. Uh, the Design of Everyday Things is a book that every designer or everyone passionate about it should read. Yeah, I, I own it and I have it sitting on my desk. I have not read it. I need to read it. 
I've also met him and I still haven't read it. <laughs> okay, the fact that you have met Don Norman, you know, it makes me and the fact that I met you for this podcast, it makes me really happy. <laughs> You know, okay. you know Don Norman now. Oh yeah, we we by association know Don Norman. I just I just think it's so wild that like before you guys even stepped into design, you kind of already just designed a curriculum for yourselves. Like I think that's also kind of wild. Um, kind of put uh put a bunch of things together because I think that's also like what a lot of HCI and like UX professionals um like kind of talk about when they go into like industry or when they talk about their own philosophy perspective it's like oh i did like this in like a past life i did this before a little bit i like worked here for a little bit and they kind of bring all all those things and ideas together to like form their either their practice or their philosophy and the way they actually do um hci and design yeah i mean i actually never thought about it that way and to be quite honest i don't think in the moment any of us realized what we were doing it wasn't like we were intentional about making a curriculum to educate ourselves it was more like we were taking a web design class from like web design in 2007 and we were like this sucks <laughs> so we just went and found the classes like I went and found the classes that I thought would benefit me and kind of round out my education and all of my friends kind of did the same thing unfortunately our major was pretty flexible about that um because like I said cognitive science was just kind of neglected so they were like yeah do whatever you want as long as you fulfill your major and your elective requirements like have fun and uh, I'm one of the many students who did uh, many other things before coming to HCI. Uh, I did my undergrad in engineering. I worked as a developer. I worked as a de designer and then came into HCI. But uh, in your case, it's very different. And back in 2000s when, uh, you know, HCI w was not even very mainstream. Right. So like, was it because uh, you were passionate about technology since beginning or was it because you're passionate about humans? What's your story since childhood? So... I don't know if you want it like a really trite story. Uh, I think a lot of it started when I was a really little kid. The like story I talk about with my family is I have an uncle who was who actually went to UC Irvine um, when I was a kid, and I always used to go to my grandma's house where he lived, and he always had like a brand new computer or something wacky, some gadget to play with. And when, around the time I was like four, I think it was around the time the internet was starting to get really big in the nineties. And he got like a dial-up modem in my grandma's house. And this was a really big deal. No one else had one. And he showed me how to set up the modem and like taught me. And no one else in the house knew how to set it up, nor did they really know how to use a computer. And very quickly, I just became obsessed with this device. I was just like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And the progression from there is I just became like the tech support for my whole family. Mr. I because I was the only one who knew how to use anything. <laughs> and I was like so interested in gadgets and gizmos and like i would pull out people's flip phones and go look through their ringtones because i was so curious about how their phones would work di differently than mine um so i think part of it was just like an inclination towards gadgets and technology and like trying to decipher them and then the other part of it was you know being that tech support for my family i think imbued this sense of empathy for me where i was like man half of these things like suck a lot they're really hard to use and people don't get them and i was constantly thinking of how to make things better but I didn't have any way to apply that to anything. So like, it really wasn't until this moment in college where I was like, oh shit, all those things that I'm like so opinionated about and I just thought were like dumb things that make me a nerd are things that are my superpower. Like they're the academic superpowers I have. I can put them to use. And then when I got a job as a designer, I was like, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Like you're literally paying me to play with toys and tell, tell me how they work, <laughs> tell you how they work better. Yeah, I could totally relate with it. And uh yeah, I attended uh, one of your events recently, uh, wherein you presented uh, about uh, how to present your half-baked portfolio. And uh, unlike many of the people uh, who tell you what to do, uh, you just give a, gave us a reference of your story. 
uh, and uh, you know uh, how you have reached here uh, in your design uh, career so like uh, how did you do it like uh, what's your storytelling uh, method why did you choose that method uh, unlike others so so for background um i gave a talk at a place sunny was at virtually recently about how to present your portfolio and present your design work and in coming up with that talk i couldn't figure out a way to like talk talk about that i didn't know what to talk about so i i made the talk around how i made the talk <laughs> it was very meta and like self referential um but i i realized that like i could give you you know i could have given just like a generic case study of some work i did or picked a project that i thought was cool but ultimately it wouldn't have any real emotional appeal you know it would just be like me lecturing people and i realized the thing that i i really the thing that i really value is authenticity and honesty and transparency in other people and especially in this industry it can be really hard because it feels like this competition like the industry is so small everyone feels like they're competing against each other everyone feels like they have to kind of guard these secrets of how they became successful so no one else becomes successful um i don't know i i think i've been fortunate that like i've i've managed to find my own success and i've i've been privileged and fortunate in a lot of ways and i'd rather not uh i'd rather not make that a secret like part of part of the process is that we all mess up and we all fail and we don't always succeed and even when it looks like we're succeeding very often we're not in private um and part of what i talked about in that presentation is like it's just as important to talk about in your design work like it's just as important to talk about the problems you had or the constraints you had or the reasons why you couldn't do something as much as like what you did accomplish and making yourself look good because like just making yourself look good is empty but if you can make yourself look good with humility and self-awareness then it grounds the work that you're doing in something real and that i guess that kind of became the theme of my talk is just like how do i ground this talk in something real so that it actually reaches like resonates with someone and doesn't just land emptily honestly like right on to that like um maybe it's also because like i'm naive i'm young in my career you know i haven't gone out into the world and uh, applied to all these jobs or had had like extensive when there had any online presence and then seeing all these people talk about like look at all these things that i'm doing and like even myself you know and i think part of it was one like a change in perspective like i started following more people who seemed to have more honest content like talking about their hardships you know like i had a really bad day today or like i got rejected like rejection resumes became a huge thing over the summer and i really wanted to celebrate that and i really love that a lot um because i'm someone who you know was like very shy very quiet very like oh i want this to be absolutely perfect before i let the whole world see it you know because i want to put my best foot forward totally um but it's so true to be more humble i think you know lifelong learning is a thing you know a learner forever is like a like a, a title people attach to themselves but it's also i think i felt it was really ironic when you have these really high and mighty professionals seem almost untouchable when like the core of our work is like human centric right it's about empathy and it's about like humility in our work so at least um when i was trying to navigate like professional world professional networking kind of stuff i think like that is also something that i search for right like you want to work somewhere that also values you that you feel like is a safe learning environment where you can always grow as a professional where you can learn from other people um and you know it's a, it's like very different sometimes when you transition in from school into the real world and i think um 
like I really appreciate just like you saying that, you know, making people feel like, you know, we're all humans making mistakes. Like if design is all about failing fast, but learning faster, but we never see the failures, then like, how am I going to learn? Um, and yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, and then, yeah. yeah the f- oh, go ahead, Sunny. The fancy word for being shy I used to use was being an ambivert. So I had this spiritual awakening, uh, maybe sitting in the room alone is what it took me to, you know, come out of my shell and be what I am. You know, I talk to people, I love that. And uh, I try to solve their problems. I love that at the end of the day. And I fail fast. I learn fast. And I'm loving that. Yeah. I, I mean, one one thing that I try and stay true to is, you know, like I'm, I'm not that much older than y'all. Like I'm, t- I'm 28. I've, I've been doing this for, I don't know how long. I've been doing this for. <laughs> don't years. do the math, everyone. <laughs> Some years. The, math. <laughs> um, the, the number, the number escapes me right now, like seven or eight years. But, um, you know, every time I approach talking about my work or giving people advice, I just look back and like, think about like, Oh, what did I want when I was in college? When I was like blind emailing everyone I knew who worked at the companies I worked, I liked. And like writing these seven paragraph long missives about why I want to work there. Like what's the advice I'd want to hear or what's the honest answer that I'd like to know. Um, And I try and approach things that way because it feels kind of counterproductive to, to, you know, play coy and act like better than other people. Like we're all here to help each other. That's literally what our job is, is to help other people. So when people approach me about help with their work, I'm just like, I do what I can to be honest and, and give them the help that I would have wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, speaking a little to that, though, um, uh, you know, like, obviously, everyone has had their fair share of struggles, right? I guess, um, what's the hardest part of your journey? And like, what is the hardest obstacle maybe that you're, you have overcome, you're trying to overcome that you think maybe is a barrier for other people? Um, If I'm going to talk about it, like, just very personally, I think it's just fighting feeling of burnout. And, and there's like, burnout at work which i've definitely experienced Mm -hmm. just from like working in the same space working too hard working too long Uh, but personal burnout is a real problem and we don't really talk about it that much like i'm I'm fortunate at my workplace right now people are pretty open and and vocal about their mental health or their emotional health um but you know i've i was in like a pretty pretty deep depression at one point for like two years and working for myself and freelancing and like on paper was doing really well like had a bunch of clients made some money uh, things were going pretty well for me, but I was just in this like deep vacuous depression and just like getting out of bed to deal with my clients every morning was the biggest, it took like more energy than anything else. And like having the energy to sit and work for eight hours and then come home and live my life, uh, was like astonishingly, astonishingly hard. And you know, I can look back at it now and I'm like, Oh, that wasn't such a big deal. But in the moment it was like two years of just like hell. And I was so burnt out and so exhausted and and dealing with like a rough patch in a relationship I was in. And just, I I felt like everything was stacked against me. And I think those types of obstacles are honestly like way harder than anything else. Like we all talk about our work and we talk about how hard work can be, but I think we fail to talk about how hard life can be. And like that gets in the way of our work just as much as our work gets in the way of our life. Mm Yeah. As I said earlier, I could relate with a lot of that. So doing stuff for yourself, maybe waking up every morning, uh, you know, doing your workout uh, and balancing your work. That is the toughest part that I've been experiencing as well. Yeah. But uh, what kept you going, you know, uh, in that phase or, you know, till now? Until now? Um, I don't know. I, th- I think like the, the common thread that underpins all of my motivations is like at some point I just want to be independent. 
um, there's this joke that was running around on Twitter that I really like that someone was like, I just want to make enough money working on computers so that I never have to look at a computer ever again. <laughs> and that's kind of my ethos. Like, I, I'd like to never look at a <laughs> MacBook Pro ever again if, if that was possible. As much as I, like, I love gadgets and I love gizmos and I love technology, but like being surrounded by all this stuff now makes me realize how much more important everything else is. And like, I just want to be in a place in my life where I can, I can make decisions and not be like beholden to an employer or a place of work or like some sort of agenda. And I can, I can make those decisions for myself or have my own company where, you know, I'm free to make those choices and help other people in a way that I think makes sense. Yeah. That sounds like a dream. And uh, next, coming to your work, sure. you're currently working on uh, the privacy platform and uh, you previously wor worked on ad targeting at Facebook. And uh, you mentioned about ethics and values in uh, some of your blog posts in Medium as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of sounds paradoxical to me. Uh, so uh, based on the societal uh, you know, opinions about Facebook or any other social media platform currently, so I'm curious, like, uh, what do you do exactly at Facebook uh, in regards of privacy and ad targeting? Sure, sure. Um, I could talk about it more specifically on privacy, just because I think it's more relatable. Like on privacy, our job is to hopefully build products that make people feel safer on Facebook and like help them trust the products that they're using. I know like trust and Facebook are, are kind of paradoxical things. Um, but I, I think like as designers, it's kind of our job to make, make people like these products and feel good about them and not like trick them or, or, you know, resort to dark patterns and stuff like that. And there's certainly tons of things that like Facebook and all these companies have done in the past that have like ended up as dark patterns or, or basically like created these, um, templates for how not to, how not to build trustworthy products. And I think to be quite honest, like that's part of the learning experience. We wouldn't have learned those things if someone hadn't messed it up. And so part of my job now is just like, how do we prevent that from happening? Uh, I basically have like a whole team of people that I work with and all, all of the designers and I were just working on different ways to offer like new types of transparency and control, how we can surface things like your settings and preferences more contextually. Um, how we can give you more agency so like you're in control of the data or the content that you share with us and a lot of these things honestly have existed for a long time within facebook um we just haven't done a really good job of promoting them or showing them showing them to people so now our job is basically like making sure people are aware of this making sure we're designing you know with actual like making sure the end users are kept in mind uh, and i think increasingly the idea of privacy is is still pretty new in our society and it's something that we're all grappling with and so it's just like how do we become um, an interface between people and their different privacy concerns and that changes honestly like country to country language to language culture by culture um, most product teams haven't been thinking about it because it's it's just like such a totally new kind of paradigm to operate in um, and so our job is basically to come up with like that first line of uh defense to like help people help protect people's privacy and then make sure that the rest of the company is held best. I just wanted to also say though, like, I think, um, when we were talking about like a bit of like work-life balance and mental health and like balancing all these things, like I think balancing privacy and also people's social media experiences with so many other factors is like very difficult. So I give you many kudos for that because there is the, the name of Facebook being like, they're stealing all my data and they're doing this and they're doing that. When it's also just like, we talk about 
but this is the age of like social connections right like oh I can talk to literally anyone and like for myself like I've made friends on online platforms in like different countries like Chile and like Indonesia and it would never have been possible without platforms like Facebook but um, you mentioned about dark patterns um, which by the way for anyone listening um, UX dark patterns is a coin termed by I think Harry Brignall to describe just like um, these like patterns in designs and interfaces that are kind of deceptive or misleading to people, whether that's in names or whatever. Um, there's a bunch of examples and we can link some references. Um, but uh, for the dark pattern for like Facebook, I remember a big common one in the beginning was just like infinite scroll, for example, right? Like not being able to stop people from continuously scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and looking at many, many different things. And I think um, also to your point about just like mental health and like Facebook's role in balancing these things about having a platform to be able to connect people, but also balancing how to make it more personal, right? Because there are so many things out there. There's so much going on and like, you having a uh, cognitive science background, you may know about like cognitive overload, right? right? People can only filter so much, right? People can only take so much. There's cognitive dissonance, which operates a lot when people look at social media content, you know, echo chambers, all these really big kind of buzzword concepts. Um, and like to be able to balance it all and like, you know, still reasonably think about like Facebook's goals, their business goals, and also what users want. Um, it's yeah. not an easy task by any means. No, it's, um, but, it's yeah. interesting because all of these things change with context, right? Like right. when I first started working in web design, infinite scroll was just like a cool thing that we did in JavaScript to make websites look cool. Yeah. <laughs> and like no one ever, there was no thought about the consequence of like paginating a page, page versus infinite scroll on someone's mental health. Cause you were just like, oh, someone will just stop when they want it. And like the, the only, like the first place Facebook as a company really got in trouble. There's this famous anecdote of like, um, I think it was like when when one of our like first engineers joined and they were trying to figure out how to like promote ads on Facebook, get advertisers on Facebook. And the infinite scroll, it was already implemented. And the link to get onto the advertising platform was at the very bottom. And so like, you couldn't get to the advertising button until you like scroll through <laughs> every possible content or like beat the infinite scroll. That's just like a funny, a funny thing. But I, I think, you know, um, Speaking about Facebook specifically, we have this this um, saying that's just like plastered all over Facebook, and it's kind of like a guideline for how we operate with each other. And it's we always say like assume good intent. And I think when building these types of pe- features, you know, people have them with good intentions in mind. Like no one was thinking about how to like trick you into staying on <laughs> on Facebook for years at a time. Right. Uh, but that's definitely the consequence. And I think that saying of assuming good intent is is a well-intentioned one, but is not complete. And the, the part that we're trying to grapple more recently, like the past few years that I've been working here, is that you have to assume good intent, but you also have to like take accountability for the impact of your actions. Definitely. And so with stuff like that, like that's kind of the whole ethos of our team is that there might have been good intentions all around us in building these products, but now we have to take responsibility for the consequences and make sure that the products are, you know, are actually helping people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, coming to Infinite Scroll or any kind of social media platform, uh, we are now more than ever trying to be more social, trying to connect with people just using these platforms or maybe attending uh, more than ever happy hours (laughs) using Zoom or whatever. So, and uh, even uh, we are just trying to consume content from other users uh, in the Infinite Scroll as well in in many other platforms. Yeah. So I just want to point out, uh, you know, about WhatsApp uh, and uh, 
WhatsApp had to literally launch a fact-checking service to fight fake news in India. So India has a user base of more than 400 million users. And uh, there are fake news spreading around uh, political elections, you know, videos and images uh, being shared and forwarded uh, to spread misinformation in India and many other countries. Uh, So uh, here the information is being spread by humans, uh, if you see. So the platform could change. And uh, even coming to United States currently, I was just talking about, uh, you know, the Twitter and Facebook impact on the political elections thing. I mean... It's a hot topic. It was a hot topic in 2016, and it's definitely coming back again. Um, I've seen some things online, um, definitely about it as well, uh, especially with fake news. I've actually seen a lot of fake news regarding COVID as well, because, you know, it's a very confusing time for so many people. Um, And, you know, like, I also just want to point out that fake news is not restricted to things just like political elections, videos and images and like, um, like COVIDs are big hot topics. Like, I don't know if anyone out there is also in this community, but like the K-pop community also routinely fights off fake news all the time. Really? There's K-pop fake news? Dude, there's K-pop fake news. For some reason, I would have never thought about that. There's definitely (laughs) K-pop fake news. Um, Especially like, I I just want to go like a little broader, but especially because um, like you can say something on Twitter and if enough people look at it, people will accept it as fact. You know, yeah, that's true. I, I yeah. make a habit out of just like Googling everything yes. that I instinctively want to like on Twitter. <laughs> also, can I just make, since we're on this topic, can I just make like a, a quick shout out to the BTS army? Like you guys are very strong. <laughs> I stand BTS army. So like, please don't come after me. Yes. Um, I'm going to make my bias right here as well. I, the only K-pop group I really listen to is Mamamoo and they just released their new song. <laughs> Mamamoo is great. I like Mamamoo. Oh, excellent. I especially like that one song by them that's just called Mamamoo. <laughs> um, anyway. Okay, I just uh, yes. know about K-pop. <laughs> that's, that's all I know. I've never that's heard okay. any songs. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> another fun fact is uh, there have been fake news about, uh, you know, uh, COVID vaccines uh, being sold in India as in people are selling them right now uh using whatsapp and oh stuff so oh, no. yeah if you if you want just like a fun way to connect these dots you know this is a really perfect example like i'm not going to go speak for like facebook the company or all the employees um but in my personal opinion like this is a great example of like all these products twitter facebook whatever but even whatsapp we're all created to help people connect and to share information and you know, even spread information virally. And the intention, even with something like YouTube, is like people are going to share good things. They're going to share like Rickroll and dumb cat videos and like interesting news. They're not going to use it to like hurt each other or harm each other because that wasn't like the world that we lived in when those things were created. Um, and that's just like an interesting thing that I'm seeing now is like, yeah, there's good intention in making a platform that lets you go viral. But there's still account like there still has to be something you do when the vi- the virality of something goes in the wrong direction. Um, which is like an interesting, I don't know, interesting thing for me. Yeah, it's my job also. In your role, um, how do you approach this then, right? Because I, I have definitely seen the fake news reporting on Facebook, for example, right? You can flag something as uh, fake news. And I think that's one pretty smart. Right. Um, and it's something that's remedial to some of the problems that we see. Um, so I'm kind of want to know if you're allowed to tell us um, 
like how do you frame and how do you test these things like how do you how do you how do you mitigate all the negative side effects of like spreading information because it is it can be such a boon right it can be so many great things being able to spread information in also right. multiple languages has been super helpful for me when communicating to my family members in like Asia right who don't speak English um and may want to know what's what's happening in right. the United States for whatever godforsaken reason um but <laughs> you know um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so I feel um, for you. I guess, like, yeah, yeah. How do you tackle it? Yeah, like, how yeah. do we prevent it from being like, how do you a bane? Test it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I I can't speak for things about like misinformation that's not within purview of what I work on, right? Um, but in like the experience of what I've seen, I think the really tricky part is that at the end of the day, we're a company of people that's like spread across the world. There's like Facebook offices everywhere in the world now, but it's still predominantly based around like Menlo Park, a town mm-hmm. in like suburban California, in Northern California. Uh, and so as much as we try to think about this stuff globally, like at some point, sometimes it comes down to like this local mindset that we have living in the U S and we're trying really hard to fight that. And so we like, as much as we want something for ourselves in the U S sometimes we have to take a step back and think about, okay, like how is this, this intervention or this idea or this, solution going to be received in other countries like the things that are our cultural standards in the u.s are not the same in other countries um you know like in the u.s we have things like you know there, there are campaigns for like free the nipple and maybe in the u.s like we are coming to a place where that could be culturally acceptable but in other places like that could get you seriously injured if you put a picture of yourself top yes mm-hmm. like you would get disowned from your family potentially and and we have all these types of stuff where like people are stealing each other's images and making fake profiles. And if they do that with your nude, pro- like a nude picture of you, that can go, you know, that ends poorly. And so it's just like, as much as we want to come up with really easy one size fits all solutions, when you're dealing with like millions or billions of people, there's just no one size fits all solution. And th- I think that's like the interesting thing I'm seeing now on what I work in in privacy is. So almost like up until the past few years, everything at Facebook has been very much like, hey, we made a thing, everyone go use it. Um, but now we're, we're thinking about things more locally and just like, how do we ap- approach building things for different markets? How do we approach different segments of people who have completely different needs? And like, this is all part of the design process. Like you think about doing user research and making per, you know personas and all this stuff, but it gets really hard when you're building products like at this big of a scale um, you really have to get close to people and just try and find like niches of people that make sense. And sometimes that's the hardest work is just like figuring out who is going to use your product and how do their how do their mindsets and values differ. Yeah, absolutely. And just to give you a fun example, one of my friends uh, put on my Facebook status as engaged when I was in college, and my entire family started calling me and going crazy about it. Oh no. <laughs> So yeah, that's a cultural thing. Like people get freaked out when they see something like that. My entire family was on Facebook. So that is a platform that's used by millions of users, billions of users across the world. And uh, like, what's your take on uh, at least creating awareness and, uh, you know, empowering these users, uh, you know, who speak different languages around the world about the fake news or, uh, you know, uh, about uh, the misinformation being spread? I mean, I don't know. It's it's like I said, I think, I think we just like try, we try and embed ourselves when we do research and design and like, a part of our design work sometimes is traveling to different countries and just talking to people one-on-one and, and getting a feel for what's on their minds and what problems they're having. Um, this is kind of a tangent, but like one of the things I've been really um, spending my energy on this year is realizing like in the wake of all the 
kind of crazy protests going on in the U.S. and just like civil unrest and misinformation being spread about COVID and like the pandemic that, um, you know, our own products have a way to help these things like Facebook, Twitter, all these things were made to promote discourse and connection with people. And unfortunately, some of them are being like co-opted for harm. Like people are spreading misinformation and all this stuff. So one of the things I started thinking about was just like, how can I personally make a difference in this conversation? And, you know, I could come home and like talk to my family members and like debate them with political views and stuff like that. And sometimes that's a dead end. But I was like, what if I just talk about this on Facebook? So I just started like putting out requests on my Facebook to all the people that I'm like friend, been friends with over the years, where I just like put out c- controversial topics. Like today I talked about climate change. Uh, I've talked about like whether we deserve universal health care. And rather than like come at my Facebook with like, these are my beliefs and you have to believe them or you're an idiot. I just like put it out there as a question of just like, hey, what do you think about universal health care? Why is it useful? Why is it not? Why do you agree with it? Why do you disagree? And somehow over the course of like two months, I think, I've actually managed to have like real debates like on my Facebook, which I never thought was a real thing. And like had friends who have completely different worldviews and different political backgrounds and whatever, just all come and like talk. And even my family members have jumped in and like, you know, some people fall into the trap of just like attacking each other and and being um, bad. But for the most part, like the majority of people have managed to find a way to be civil and like have a debate and talk to each other. And, you know, that doesn't really answer your question about how we're fighting misinformation, but like on a very local level, that's how I feel like I can help that. Like I might not be able, I don't work on the products that fight misinformation, but I can still have an effect on, you know, the hundreds of people around me that are looking at my Facebook or, you know, checking out the pictures of my cat or something like that. And I, I think, I think learning that we have like, we have that responsibility and we have that agency to affect change on the people around us is a really valuable thing. Like at the end of the day, that's probably going to help us more than any solution I could build at Facebook. Short of just like telling people what they can and can't talk about. Like that doesn't work, unfortunately. Right. I think um, one, it's really powerful to believe that you have, like as an individual, the power to do something. I think in in an age where we're surrounded by so many people self-aware that we're surrounded by so many people and so much information it can feel like whatever we do doesn't make a difference for example right um but even if you have a role like yourself you know a designer at facebook or if you just like me like myself i'm just a student in an academic institution right um i really do think and believe that you can do a lot and even if you don't work and if you aren't a student and you're like still young or you don't have a job or whatever background you have there's still differences you can make i remember when i was in high school my mom was someone who you know wasn't really invested in political issues you know we lived in a kind of an upper middle class area of california which is traditionally democratic state and um but over the years over the years that i've been in college over the years of conversation that i've had with her she's transformed so much she's like she's even at the point where like right now she talks with um chinese speaking trump supporters in california asking about and like their opinions like why they support trump for example and like why don't they support black lives matter and all these other things as like an east asian woman who is an immigrant in america representing a minority opinion in that community and so i i want to encourage and like your story as well you know encourage discourse encourage conversation and the fact that when you have these conversations with people maybe they may not agree right off the bat but it's definitely possible that they can make a change right it's the same thing when we think about like linkedin connections or facebook connections it's not just you and your friends it's their friends and their community members and their social groups and it can really spread fast and just exactly to your point about how 
information spreads. Like people naturally do that, and these online venues are also ways that these are conduits and easier and more convenient ways to be able to get messages across. So I think that's、um, like a perfect example, like a great example of like doing something in your own right. You yeah, know, and、totally. it's also informed by your experiences. And、mm-hmm. if you want、yeah, to also connect. Yeah, I also feel this podcast is kind of、uh, what we are trying to do. You know, fight misinformation about HCI.、Uh, where at least in India, where I talk to a lot of people, they say, "Why don't you do an IT job?、Yeah. Uh, that would be way better." Even today, <laughs> so I'm like,、uh, I'm doing what I love.、Uh, so I'm not just drawing stuff.、Uh, I'm working in a field、uh, which is very niche. So yeah, and if you want me to connect, like to connect it back to design, actually, you know, I think this parallels a lot of the stuff that goes on with my work, like. I'm only ever working on like one or one or two things at a time, really. And as young designers, we have this like bias for action and this bias for change, and we want like everything to change around us drastically right away. And realistically, like that's not how change works. Change is slow, and it's it's not this like dramatic overnight change. It's a slow build. And it's the same thing with discourse. Like you can't you can't, the same way that you can't expect people to change overnight and their opinions to change. You can't expect people to like adapt to things changing around them suddenly.、Either. And I think part of the interesting thing with design work is like being able to plan ahead and think about like what are all the steps I need to make this change a reality, and like how can I do it in a way where people won't notice the change happening around them and they'll be gradually acclimated to it. And that's kind of like the same thing that we're missing, I think, in discourse is we forget that like the end isn't just even if your end is just to like persuade someone and change their mind,、um, you're not going to do that on like the first step. And like you have to you have to build a strategy, you have to build an approach that will help you. Help create the environment where people will have these conversations, just like you'll create the environment where people will use your product or whatever. I don't know if that made sense, but no, it totally made sense. And、uh, just speaking of、uh, design, I just realized、uh, you worked as a freelance designer, where it was like running your own business, and you worked in、uh, as a human factors engineering engineer at Sony, and you worked as a front end engineer,、uh, a product designer. And you're also a documentary photographer, so people would be confused. Ideally, the conventional people think you can just do one job, but、uh, you're you're acing it all the jobs you do. So、Thank、is Hetsi the common thread, or、uh, you know how are you managing it? Like、uh, how are you acing it?、Uh, everything you do. I mean, to, to be honest, all of those jobs kind of like ladder back up to design work, other than my like the work I do as a photographer.、Um, you know, like human factors engineer is just what we used to call. UX designers before they were product designers, <laughs> and then when I was like a UX designer, I was start I was working at a startup, and they're like, "Oh, you're a UX designer, but we also need a front end engineer." So I became a UX designer <laughs> and a front end.、Engineer. And then when I got hired at Facebook, they're like, "All right, you're not a UX designer, you're a product designer."、So、great, like so I have all these different labels. They all kind of mean the same thing.、Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I think human computer interaction is the common thread. Obviously, like it's what underpins my design work, and I think the re- really like. Uh, cheesy thing I can say that underpins all of that is I just like working on like working with people. Even my photography is all centered around people and and portraiture and stuff like that and and strangers I meet on the street. And I think there's、um, I don't know there's something that draws me to people and how how unique we are and how many what like diversity of thoughts and values and ideas we have.、Um, it's always something that that's inspiring to me and something that I just like working around. It keeps me energized. 
I think photography is a great example of a great pun. Reframing <laughs> is the actual literal term in design. And we think of reframing as also what snapshot do I want? What angle do I want to take this at? What is the lighting? What is the context? It's There's so many parallels to design. And at least um, from like when my background in design and also uh, what I've been taught in design is that like design is not just... Uh, your typical visual graphic design, certainly a big portion of it, right? Putting um, form to function. But design is anything and anyone, and anyone is a designer if they try to bridge towards a preferred future state. Um, Herbert A. Simon's very poorly, uh, the poorly butchered quote that I took from uh, Herbert A. Simon about bridging to a future state. So I think that describes it quite perfectly about strategy about thinking about all the other areas that HCI can also influence. Totally. I, I respect that view a lot. I think, you know, the fact that like I'm a designer and I get to put that on my resume is kind of, uh, it's not super relevant to me. Like I feel like and I could train, train anyone to be a designer really quickly. It's just a way of thinking and approaching the world. Um, which, which is, it makes it that much funnier to me that like, there are so many of these designers who have these like closely held secrets about how they're successful designers. I'm like, all, all you're really doing is looking at the world, thinking about how to make things better for someone else. And that's a pretty easy thing to do once you think about it. Yeah, I think it's about uh, the thinking process. And uh, maybe if you want to solve a problem that uh, relates to people, you learn everything. Like I learned about development. I learned about engineering. I add up all those skills. Right. And I'm also a photographer. So everything that relates to stuff. Uh, but what is your personal mantra here for your success? What is my personal, what was that? Your personal mantra for success? Oh, my personal mantra. Um, man, that's a good question. I should have thought about that ahead of time. Think ahead. That's <laughs> the mantra here. <laughs> yeah, don't procrastinate. Maybe don't procrastinate. It's something I tell myself every single day and I, I still never do it. All right, I still always do it. No, it's not procrastinating. It's not procrastinating. It's just taking a little bit more time. Yeah, it's being more thoughtful. It's like baking. It's exactly. being more thoughtful. We'll call it that. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think my mantra is just to like, it's really just to like be empathetic. You know, like think think about others before myself when I can. Um, yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that one. I don't have a good one for you right now. Not a good soundbite that you could stick in a podcast at, at least. <laughs> yeah, I'll feed it back. <laughs> yeah so it's about altruism as a designer i think uh what you're saying but uh, uh switching gears how do you see yourself as a nomad so nomad has a con- negative connotation in uh, many contexts uh but uh, i think it's people who are stepping out of their comfort zones uh to do what they love and that uh, you know to do be to do uh help people i guess you know uh, with their design um i don't know i, I just think like we're we're all like, if you want to get philosophical, I think we're all put on this earth to learn from each other. And that's part of the cool part of my job is like, I'm just getting paid to learn about other people and apply that learning to something that hopefully benefits them and also benefits other people. And it's like that to me is the coolest, coolest thing that you can do is just like reverberate and regurgitate all the cool things going on in the world around you and, and amplify people's abilities. Like that's, that's the whole boon of technology to me and i mean technology is like a tool to help you like a man-made tool for humans and not necessarily like computers and phones like that's the whole thing of technology is it just like amplifies our own innate abilities and our own skills and so i think when it comes down to it like that's that's the draw for me 
don't know if that answered your question or if I have your definition of nomad right. It's subjective, right? All these things, words are subjective, meaning is subjective. This whole world is subjective. What even is real? Uh, we're not going to save save that for a different podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I mean, none of the, this is definitely a simulation, and I'm happy to dissect <laughs> why later on. Ooh, should I drop John Baudrillard's name in the chat? <laughs> Please, yeah. Um, simulacrum and simulacrum. Oh. The perfect crime, yeah, simulation. simulation. Um, well, we are reaching the end of our time, but um, one last thing, very hopefully very final thing, is we're trying to do this thing where, you know, like nomads and like anthropologists, um, we find things in history that people from many, 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 many years ago have left behind. So if there's one thing that you want to leave um, all the listeners um, on this podcast with, like a piece of wisdom, for example, or a little quote or something, what would you want to leave them with? Ooh. Well, I, I think given the context um, that y'all are students and we're talking about like younger designers and journeys and all this stuff, I think the most important lesson I can give you is, and this is going to sound meaningless, but it's just, it's just to trust your intuition and know that like you have a voice and your opinion is valued and valuable. And it's, it's only as valuable as you let it be. And I think especially in this industry, we have a lot of people who will tell you what to do and how to think based on your age or your tenure. And that's just like a common thing in professional life. And the thing I've learned as a designer is that like the things that I thought were right from day one tend to be true. And doesn't and it, that's the case for anyone who's like starting out in these fields. You're just told to doubt yourself because you don't have the experience. And I think that's that's a, an unfortunate disservice we do to ourselves. And the more the more time you spend listening to that and the less time you spend listening to your own critical voice on the world, you might miss out on a really important way to actually help people or, or do the next big thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think uh, many of the listeners, including me, could uh, relate to it. And uh, I love the philosophical wisdom uh, that you have been sharing in between. And uh, thank you so, so much for sharing your story, your opinions about privacy and uh, uh, how to stop misinformation today. Yeah, you got it. And, and just in case anyone from HR at my company is listening, I, <laughs> I'm not speaking on behalf of Facebook and I'm under my NDA, just like you asked. He's doing, he's doing his job. Thumbs up. You can't see, but I'm thumbs, thumbs up for thumbs Facebook. Up. <laughs> I have two thumbs up. Thumbs yeah. up. Um, thank you so much again, Kian, for being here with us today on this late night for us, evening for you. Um, if you want to yeah. uh, learn more about Kian, we'll put some links in the description below and also some of the things that we mentioned here. Um, but yeah, so subscribe to our uh, various media, out- media outlets and Spotify and Apple Podcast. Yeah, smash that subscribe button. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Every Friday, we release new episodes on 5.30 p.m. Pacific time or 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, this is Sunny. And this is Connie. And this is Keon. Until next time. <laughs> mm-hmm.